Good morning. If we haven't had the opportunity to meet yet, my name is Terry Lee. I'm the pastor here, and uh, we're going to mix things up a little bit this morning. So if you are a regular, you called the Oaks home, this will feel different. If you're a first-time guest, this will feel totally normal. Uh, if you have one of these worship guides, this is a great time to get it out, fill it out, because our volunteers are going to come forward and pass around the buckets. You guys can go ahead and come up. It's an exciting day because uh, one of our brothers in Christ is getting baptized. Ian is getting baptized. Yeah, we can celebrate that. And uh, my good friend, Pastor Kivett, who is also their lead pastor from Winston-Salem, is here to do the baptism. So it's just crazy. Uh, the Lord is constantly at work. And uh, Kivett and I, we met about six years ago at this point, And uh, he was the sending pastor whenever the, the remains uh, first decided to go off to Spain. And uh, the Lord brought them to Cincinnati for Ian's treatment. And today we get to celebrate Ian's baptism together as a church family. You'll also notice that in this worship guide, you have a couple things coming up. One thing that you need to know for this week is that we are going to the Reds game together on the 18th uh, this Saturday. So you can put that on your calendar, register by Wednesday, grab a ticket. It'll be fun if we all get to sit together. We also have a park night coming up next Wednesday. So if you were at the one this past Wednesday, you know that a tornado warning cannot stop a good Oaks party. Uh, so it was, it was fun. We were like, how do we communicate trying to call this thing off? Well, let's just do it anyways. And so that's what we did. And we had a great time. Um, there are so many things going on in the life of our church. You've heard about equipped classes each Sunday through the summer. We're having women's Bible study next door and then men's Bible study in this room. So Show up at nine, be a part of that if you're able. It's a great time to get to know people that maybe you don't get to know in this setting. If you have your copy of God's Word, go ahead and find Mark chapter 12. We're continuing our series through the book of Mark that we are calling Walking with Jesus. Now, uh, as you turn there, I want to make a confession. There are few things that have made me question my confidence as a pastor, like trying to explain complex Theological concepts to my children. Right, if you're a parent, you've been there, you know those conversations, especially with our four-year-old, like he's asking really good questions that sometimes are just really hard to answer. Well, recently it was the last day of preschool for our oldest son, Brooks. And he comes home, you know, we're, we're like ready to party because it's the last day of school, and he's kind of bummed out. We're like, what's up, buddy? And uh, Mrs. Ivan, his teacher, wasn't there that day. She was sick, and so you know, he had a gift for her, wanted to give her a goodbye hug for summertime. And so he just kind of come in, and he was kind of you know, sad. And so we're like, buddy, don't worry. I mean, you'll get to see Mrs. Ivan again. We literally had an ice cream social with the school the next weekend. So we're like, it, it's not a big deal. And he just kind of went out his big side, and he said, you're right. I'll see her again in heaven one day. <laughs> <laughs> She's a great Christian woman, I'm sure that you will, but also, this is just a cold. You know, like, she's okay. In fact, we did see her at the Ice Cream Social the, the next weekend, you know, so it's all right, buddy. Uh, now, what did I pick up on that small interaction? Well, that over the past couple years, Brooks, our four-year-old, has watched Abby and I grieve the loss of both of our grandfathers with joyful anticipation of heaven. Of reunion, of being in the presence of God, of all things that are sad becoming untrue, of, of things being restored and good. Isn't it amazing that even a four year old can, can pick up on the fact that our future home 
gives us a present hope. It's so important because what we will learn as we study Mark chapter 12 in this conversation that Jesus has with this group called the Sadducees is that my four-year-old son has better theology than one of the leading religious groups at that time. Because these, these Sadducees, they didn't believe in heaven. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in bodily resurrection of people. Uh, so they had this truncated view of what the Bible teaches. They were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in heaven. I know. I, I ask my guys, like, I've got this dad joke out of my system. Or it'll come up again, like, in a more distracting point in the sermon. So there it is. I'll do it again. I promise. All right, these, these Sadducees. They didn't believe in heaven, and now every time I say it, you'll be ruined. I apologize. But they they didn't believe in heaven. They missed out. They neglected one of the greatest sources of comfort in the Christian life, in eternal life, our present hope in our future home in the presence of God. Now, let me bring that to your address. Let me make you feel that on a ground level. What great comfort it is. To the mother who has miscarried, that one day she will know the color of her daughter's eyes. What an encouragement it is for us as we sit here and we become so painfully frustrated. That sometimes we slip into the same old sins again and again. That one day we will be in the presence of God. That we will be in a place so saturated by the glory of God. That sins like pride and comparison and overindulgence and lust will seem to lose their complete appeal. Isn't it such a great comfort that we would dwell in a place without suffering? You will never attend another freedom one day. Whether it is an aching body or a broken heart, God will restore all things and make all things. Whether it is debilitating depression or a disease that one day God will bring complete restoration and healing. This is the hope of heaven. And the greatest thing is that one day our faith will become silent. Imagine for a moment when you have felt closest to God in this early, earthly life. Be it maybe on a prayer walk, maybe you're at a Christian camp. There's just this moment where you surrendered to God. Maybe there's this big decision that you were trying to make. Just in a moment of fasting or prayer, just pleading with God, you surrendered it to Him. And it felt like you just kind of reached out and touched Him. Maybe, maybe there was this moment in your devotional life where a verse just jumped off the page of Scripture and grabbed you by the shoulders and pulled you close. Take that moment of tangibly experiencing the presence of God, amplify it by a million and stretch it out over eternity. And you will have some small foretaste of what you will experience in the presence of God in heaven for all eternity. You will will know God the Father to the point that his glory will outshine the sun so much that the sun itself will be unnecessary for light. You will walk with Christ. I think that you will find great delight in showing you all of the ways that he has carefully orchestrated your life to point to him that you would see his glory and one day enter it. I think that we will be so full of the Holy Spirit that there are longings of your soul that you don't even know exist right now that will one day be satisfied in his presence. I can't overhype heaven. I'm trying. I can't do it. And Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4 gives us the command whenever we talk about the life to come and the resurrected body. He says, comfort one another with these things. And that's my aim today. I want to be faithful to that command. I want to comfort you as I've been comforted this week. 
I think in Mark 12 we'll learn this, that our personal relationship with Christ promises us a present hope and a future home. Our personal relationship with Christ promises us a present hope and a future home. Now let's look at this passage at first glance. It seems kind of obscure perhaps, and yet this is just rich with comforting biblical truth. Verse 18, Mark chapter 12. And Sadducees came to him, came to Jesus, and these Sadducees say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Well, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, he left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. Now, in the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. The first thing we see in this passage is a hypothetical question. Now, in this section of Mark 12, we have the third question that's being brought to Jesus in the temple. First, it was the Sanhedrin, and they come questioning the authority of Christ. And what happens? Christ establishes his authority and empties theirs. Then last week, we saw the Pharisees and Herodians. They you know, bring this political question about taxes, and they witness his wisdom. Now, we see the Sadducees bringing a theological question. And what do we learn about the Sadducees right here in verse 18? We learn that they do not believe in the resurrection. Right? Okay, how can a religious group not believe in the resurrection? You read through the Old Testament, and Daniel 12, 1 through 2, says that those who are asleep will one day rise and be judged, some to everlasting life, and others to everlasting shame and contempt. But you read a passage of Scripture, like Psalm 16, where Jesus says, You will not abandon my soul to death, but there it is. Pleasure in your presence forevermore. Job 19.26. He says that, that I will see the Lord after the day of my death. Isaiah 26.19 says, Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Even Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes talks not just about those who read the scripture. But that God has set eternity in every human heart. That we have a view for forever that is hardwired into the human soul. So how did the Sadducees miss it? Well, scholars have noted that the Sadducees only affirmed the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, or the Pentateuch, to be authoritative for them. So they only believed the things that Moses wrote, those five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And they simply reasoned, well, you know, since it's, the resurrection isn't clear, maybe the afterlife isn't fully there in those books, and we're just not going to believe it. So then they dismissed the, uh, you know, anything like angels or resurrection, body or the afterlife, any of this stuff, heaven. They just didn't believe it. Now, why is this so important for us now? Well, because although the Sadducees are no longer a group that exists, this ideology is alive and well in our day. Perhaps the counterpart for the Sadducees in our modern era would be something like Christian modernism, or also called Christian liberalism, where people, you know, say, okay, well, we'll take some of the scriptures, but, you know, things like uh, a resurrection, like, or a concept like resurrection, that's more of a metaphor in scripture. I mean, yeah, Christ raised spiritually, but not bodily. And we'd say, you know, scripture says that he eats, raised bodily, they take miracles, like the feeding of the 5,000, and then say something like, 
Well, you know, when the crowd saw the generosity of the young boy, then they had pulled out their lunches too. And they began to kind of spread it out and say, no, Jesus did something miraculous. And whenever we come to Scripture and we say, hey, there's something here that my finite mind can't comprehend, our first response is to say God is greater than we are, not to somehow rework it to suit our sensibilities. Well, the Sadducees were kind of reworking truth to fit into their tiny little framework. And this leads to a hypothetical question that we see here. They present this question to Jesus about a woman that is married, and then unfortunately her husband dies. And they quote Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 and 6. They say, well, Moses, right, their big authority, didn't Moses say that if a husband dies and he doesn't have any offspring, then in order to protect his estate, his belongings, his possessions, to keep his bloodline going, that his brother-in-law needs to now take that woman as a wife, and so on and so forth. We actually see a beautiful picture of this in the story of Ruth, right? This is the levirate marriage, it's the brother-in-law marriage, uh, it's the kinsman redeemer concept. This is a great thing. Uh, that God put in uh, his, his word to help them live. Now, the, the Sadducees took this and they said, yeah, we'll abide by this law on the earth. But whenever you apply this teaching to, to your concept of the afterlife, it just, it just makes the afterlife silly. They're trying to use this as kind of a complex way to disprove the resurrection, saying this would just – how would this work out? Are you going to like disavow the, the covenant of marriage here? Are you going to neglect what God has put in place? And so then they come up with a scenario saying he's got six brothers, and each one of them marries you know, many kids, and you know, he dies. And this happens six times. Like you begin to think you know, the common denominator here is the lady. Like what's going on? You know, like if I'm the sixth brother, I'm thinking – you know what? I'm, you know, just don't know if this is a good idea. But anyways, that's not the point. All right, so they come up with this scenario. And what Jesus is going to say is that they completely miss the resurrection. And that they completely misunderstand the reality of heaven and the life to come. With their hypothetical question, Jesus gives an honest answer. That's what we're going to see in verses 24 through 27. Jesus gives an honest answer. Verse 24. Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? I love this, right? As fans of the Oaks, uh, the Oaks Church, we're fans of the gentle and lowly, the book. And so it's kind of fun to see Jesus, you know, just come out and say, like, hey, is this not why you are wrong, Sadducees? Right? You can do both. Uh, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses? In the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. We've seen this again and again in Mark 12. The smug joy of Jesus' opponents is always short-lived. And Jesus just bluntly answers them, hey, is this not why you are quite wrong? And then he gives them kind of a two-fold reason that they are so wrong. They don't know the scriptures. And they don't know the power of God. They don't know the scriptures because this teaching of resurrection and heaven it is a scriptural, biblical teaching. Even the first five books, the ones that only they affirmed. Not only that, they've neglected the power of God. That God can and indeed does raise the dead to life. That one day there will be a moment when Christ returns. And that we are reunited with our earthly glorified bodies. Again, they've completely missed 
the biblical teaching on these matters, and the power of God in its effect. In verse 25, Jesus just says, when they rise. He doesn't even bother to squabble with them on this issue. He's just saying, hey, we rise. Everyone rises again when they rise. And then he begins to explain about us that we will not be married nor given in marriage. Now, I have to be honest here. I think this is probably one of the hardest teachings of Jesus for me. Uh, because I am married to Abby, we celebrate 10 years, and I love being married to Abby. Uh, that's, that's just something like maybe, you know, you don't really enjoy your marriage, so you're like, yes, it's the greatest verse I've ever heard. Um, and don't, don't breathe a sigh of relief right now. I'm glad that we are glad to be counseling throughout the week. Um, now, we see that we're neither given in marriage, we're not married here. And, and for some of us, I mean, that can be a really hard truth to think about. But, but get this, the earthly concept of marriage will one day be eclipsed by a greater marriage. It will one day be eclipsed by what it truly points to. In Ephesians 5, Paul says that this is this gracious analogy that God has planted, this metaphor between the way that Christ, our groom, loves his bride, the church, and that marriage on earth pictures that heavenly reality. That whenever Christ returns, the groom will receive the bride that has been prepared for him. And, and there will be no more need of, of earthly marriage because it will have reached and served its full purpose. It's like that moment whenever you're sitting in a restaurant and you order your food and you take that little card that has a number to it at your table and you put it on the stand. Whenever they bring your food to you, you're not like, oh, wait, wait, wait can I keep the card? Like, I really, I really want that to just kind of hold here to me. Now you're like, if the fullness of what I have longed for has come. This has served its purpose in the same way. We will be united with Christ. And we can trust that God is good. God's plan for us will always be better, even though we can't fully understand it. Uh, the relational depth that we experience will be more not less in the presence of God. Not only that, but to say that we will be like angels. How will we be like angels? First, it's funny that Jesus says this because they didn't believe in angels. So he's like proving his point and then also to kind of jabbing them in like another sore spot here just to say like, oh yeah, and on this issue, there are also angels. Now, he says this because we will not die, we won't become angels, but we'll have certain qualities that angels have. We won't be married, we won't procreate, we won't die at any point. And so we are like angels in that sense. Now, it's important to know that whenever we die, we don't become angels because that would actually be a demotion. Uh, humans are created in the image of God. Angels are not. Remember, angels long to look into the glories of the gospel. And they kind of see a blurry vision of what we personally experience, the, the death of God's grace and steadfast love and his mercy and this personal relationship that we have. Right? So, so we're like angels in one sense, and yet, wow, just so much more in relation to God than angels are. Now, it's also important whenever we talk through something like this to, to realize that God's purpose in marriage, even though one day we'll maybe not be married, uh, we'll be more like angels in that sense, that this makes more of our marriage than less. Uh, that in fact, it infuses our marriage with more meaning now than it would if, if we didn't have this view of spending eternity with God. 
that in fact one of our primary goals of marriage is to prepare your husband or spouse for heaven. Tim Keller says it like this in his book, The Meaning of Marriage. He says, what keeps the marriage going is your commitment to your spouse's holiness. You're committed to his or her beauty. You're committed to his greatness and perfection. You're committed to her honesty and passion for the things of God. That's your job as a spouse. Any lesser goal than that, any smaller purpose, and you're just playing at being married. You see, the secret to deep friendship and sustained joy in our marriages, as momentary as they might be, is the ability to look into your spouse's eyes and say, let us follow Christ together, for we are preparing one another for eternity. What would it look like to take away those habits that are not preparing for you, preparing you for eternity? Uh, to, to add those things in your life in which you will pursue Christ all the more. To prepare your spouse for heaven, not, not to seek the dream that we often hear on earth about being a match made in heaven, but committing to be a match made for heaven. And we see that truth here come to us in this scripture, that our marriages matter, that our lives matter. For one day we will be like the angels. Now I think an- another thing here that we often question is, when Jesus says this, what does this make of the nature of our relationships in heaven? Will we recognize one another? Well, 1 Thessalonians 4.17, Paul says that whenever Christ comes, whenever uh, we are raised, that we will be reunited. All believers will be reunited. We see in Luke 16, the, the story that Jesus tells about Lazarus and the rich man. They recognize one another from their life here on earth. And so... Uh, We can see from this passage that, yes, we will recognize one another. We will have relationships in heaven. And if anything, these relationships will be richer, not less. Now, after Jesus uh, explains these things, he always anticipates the question that the Sadducees will have. They'll say something like, well, yeah, of course, you know, you're you're saying that there's a resurrection and that there is heaven. But you're saying all of that because uh, you affirm the scriptures that are not just the first five books of the Bible, which we hold. But what does Jesus do? He says, have you not read in the book of Moses in verse 26, the passage about Bush, how God spoke to him saying, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. What does he do? He points to a passage in the book of Exodus, for them the authoritative word of God. And and he, he says, do you not remember that conversation that God had with Moses in the burning bush? That he said, I'm the God of Abraham, I'm the God of Isaac, and I am the God of Jacob. Now, what has he just done? He didn't use past tense verbs, even though all three of those people at that point in the book of Exodus were dead and gone. No, God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Here he's saying, what is the source of their eternal life, God's present relationship with them? The fact that that passage proves that death cannot nullify the covenant love and relationship of God. He is showing the reality that a relationship with God equals eternal life. The relationship that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had with God meant that although they were dead on earth, they were still alive in his presence. And here we see this beautiful continuity throughout the whole of Scripture. That eternal life equals a relationship with God. And that a relationship with God equals eternal life. See, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob could say, God is my God. Let me ask, do you have that confidence? Do you have eternal life because God is your God? 
If you're a Christian, you can say yes, confidently. Then praise God. There is no fear in death for you. If you are a Christian, then despite what items on your bucket list might not ever get scratched off, you have secured the most important aspect of your existence. The hope of eternal life, as Jesus says in John 6 and John 17, is both a future hope and a present reality. That right now you enjoy the benefits of eternal life and complete forgiveness. That you are filled with the Holy Spirit. That you know God and He knows you by name. If you're not a Christian, this is the moment that you'd say, you know what? I don't have eternal life. But I need to call upon Christ in this moment that I would have life to the full in His name. Many of you guys know that our two-year-old just got glasses. Uh, you know, curly hair, glasses, runs around here like, like a wild man. Well, I don't know how you find out that a two-year-old needs glasses and machines and doctors for that. Here's what I do know. Uh, that the first time that we slid those lenses over his eyes, his focus completely shifted. Uh, he's nearsighted. And so because he's nearsighted, he can only focus on things that are like right here without his glasses. And if we put those over his eyes, I mean, you can see him blink a couple times, and then he's like looking up at the ceiling because it's far away. He's looking across the room. He's looking through the window, and we just like, we're so excited about that moment because immediately his focus shifted as soon as those lenses dropped over his eyes. If you're not a Christian, perhaps this sermon would almost act as those lenses over your spiritual eyes. That, that right now you need to consider that you will spend forever somewhere. Uh, you, you're so focused maybe on your five or ten year plan that you haven't thought about what your life will be like five billion or ten billion years from now. That you will spend eternity in heaven or hell. Uh, consider the fact that maybe you are so distracted by the demands of this world that you need to think in this moment about your eternal state and your relationship with God. To have life is simply to call out to him, to trust in the finished work of Christ on his cross and in his resurrection and to have life in his name. Because we worship the one who is risen, we have the hope of heaven. The final thing that I want you to see as we kind of step back and, and look at this passage is that we have the hope of heaven. And it is the hope of heaven for all who believe. You see, while the question about Multiple marriages in heaven has probably never crossed your mind before this morning. Now, we can be susceptible to the same error that the Sadducees fell into. Because what was their error? Well, they didn't know the scriptures about bodily resurrection and about heaven. Uh, they didn't fully grasp the power of God because they were unfamiliar with the things that God says about himself and about our future. Uh, this is a great comfort to us. Romans 8, Paul tells us to consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. To have an eternal perspective is to be able to endure with great hope and confidence in this life. It is to be able to comfort one another with these great truths. So what does it mean? What are we saying whenever we talk about heaven? Well, there are kind of two biblical ways to, to think of heaven. It's one word that is used in two different ways. Heaven is, is the place that Christians will be after they die. And in between their death on earth and our bodily resurrection when Christ returns. 
It's this place that Christians will be uh, during that time. We, we know this from scriptures like uh, Paul in 2 Corinthians saying to be absent from the body is to be present with Christ, to be present with the Lord. Uh, we know that whenever Jesus spoke to the thief on the cross, he said, today you will be with me in paradise. That for believers who breathe their last in this life, breathe their first in the life to come, in the conscious and constant presence of God. And that brings great hope. The second way that we refer to heaven throughout the scriptures is of the new heavens and the new earth. That whenever Christ returns, our bodies, our earthly bodies will be reunited to our souls. They will be glorified. They will be completely restored. Christ will make all things new. He will restore all that sin has broken in the heavens and the earth. And that we will dwell in his presence on a recreated, restored earth for all eternity. So whenever we refer to heaven, we are speaking of it in these two ways. Now what does the scriptures teach us about heaven? About our eternal future for all who believe. Well, there are 17 things, and I'm not going to go through them all, so you're welcome. Just know that my notes are always in the weekly email, so you can click the link and grab all of them there. I just want to look at a couple of these. Look at one through four. Heaven is being prepared by Christ himself as a place for us. Christ said that he would go and prepare a place for us. The heaven is only for those who have been born again. Your default is not heaven. The default of every sinner who has rebelled against God is hell. It is only through Christ that we will enter heaven. He is the way. Heaven is described as a glorious city. Heaven will shine with and be lightened by God's glory. Look at 13 and 14. Heaven is joyful. Heaven is a place for all eternity. Now, while our, all of our questions about heaven might not be answered, the Bible is not silent on these things. He says that there will be a heaven where we will go when we die. One day Christ will return. There will be a new heavens and a new earth. Now think about it just logically for a moment. If I said, hey, I want to give you a new book. Would you know something of what I was talking about? Absolutely. You would expect for me to hand you something with sentences and chapters and pages that was bound together. You would know what I was talking about. Whenever Jesus said there was a, there's a new heavens and a new earth, we know that it would be similar and yet sinless. That, that we have some sort of comparison, and yet it'll be far better than anything we could ever imagine. Some people wonder, well, will heaven be a boring place? No, heaven will not be boring. Think about this for a moment. We will be in the constant presence of God, and think about the character of God. Think about the God who is a master artist who has woven together such hues of pink and purple and orange in a sunset that we can see the hundredth. Or the 500th sunset and still be in awe of who he is. The same God who, who planted taste buds on our tongues so that the taste of citrus, our, our jaws would clench. The same God who has kind of unleashed this tidal wave of emotion. That moment that you look at a newborn child that you're welcoming into your arms. The same God who puts adrenaline in our veins whenever you're going over that first hill on a roller coaster at Kings Island. The God who has created all of these things in this world. Do not think that in his full restoration and in our glorified bodies that it would be anything less than that. Oh, friends, heaven will not be boring. Heaven will be unbelievably glorious in the presence of God. It will be a place of celebration. The angels rejoice when one sinner repents. Now, imagine what it's going to be like when all of us sinners come home and we celebrate God. 
Matthew 8, Jesus said that he will eat with us. He's preparing not only a place for us, but a table for us. Uh, we're told that, that we will one day dine with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That we will count stories of God's faithfulness together. In fact, thinking about heaven has a dramatic impact on the way that we live on the earth. Because what did Jesus teach us to pray? He said, pray this. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That the more that we think about heaven, reflect on heaven, the way that God's will is done in heaven, the more that we think about the way that we will live life in the future, it begins to shape the way that we live life here. It was the Puritan Jonathan Edwards who once said, God, please stamp eternity on my eyeballs. That I would have such a, a fixed focus of the future that would cause me to, to pursue you now, to know you deeper now, that I might live more in your tangible presence, that I would tell others about you because there is still room in heaven and we want many more to hear that the table of God would be full. And in heaven we will have glorified bodies. You see, the Sadducees, they denied the power of God because they believed this was a, that our bodies wouldn't be glorified, our bodies wouldn't be restored, that there was not an eternal hope for those who trusted in Christ. But the Bible has much to say about our glorified bodies. In fact, eight things. They are recognizable. They are like Christ's body. They are filled with the Spirit. They are eternal. They are glorious. They are without pain. They are without hunger or thirst. They are without sin. If you wanted kind of one chapter of the Bible to go to to say, I really want to know what the Scripture says about our resurrected body, I would point you to 1 Corinthians 15. And in 1 Corinthians 15, it talks about the resurrection of Christ. He has the first fruit of our resurrection. And then it kind of goes to Paul's question that he will ask rhetorically and then answer it. He says, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? The passage that Caden read earlier. He said, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, which is the way that you refer to Christians dying because we rise again and live again in God's presence. He says we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this imperishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality... Then shall come to pass the saying that it is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. How can we have such great confidence in the face of death? Because there is one who has gone before us. See, death is kind of the ultimate effect of sin. Whenever God gave the command in the garden, he said, you eat of this tree, you will surely die. And in that moment, they experienced a spiritual death, and that they were separated from God, but also a physical death that would gradually and slowly come over time. Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. Literally, the ultimate pinnacle of our sin is death. And death reigned through humanity, as Romans 5 says. It appeared that death had secured its greatest victory in the crucifixion of Christ. And yet, what do we see? That Christ would not stay dead, but he was resurrected. That he lived again, that he silenced the boast of 
of sin and the grave. That he rose again, as 1 Corinthians 5 would say, or 15 would say, as the first fruits of our resurrection. That because Christ now lives, he gives life to us and promises that we will live again. Our personal relationship with Christ gives us a present hope and a future home, promises to us a present hope and a future home that we will be raised again. Many of you know that in February of this past year, uh, my grandfather passed away, my papa, and uh, you know, kind of through a series of surgeries, the doctors you know, said they had done all they could do. So my family went into his rooms, blew cognizant, and they told him, uh, they were like, you know, this, it's, there's nothing else we can do. And uh, at some point, we're going to have to you know, take you off the ventilator. And so we want you to be able to you know, know that this is what's happening and kind of discuss with us a course of action and all those things. And um, so as I heard that, I, you know, I wanted to be there, but I couldn't get down in time and, uh, there in Florida. And so I FaceTimed with my grandfather for about 15 minutes uh, on Friday. And he was, was going to pass away at 10 a.m. on Saturday the next morning. And... Uh, as I, as I talked to him, you know, we prayed together, and uh, I just thanked him for the model of like, godliness and the husband and father that he's been. And I marveled at the kind of composure and peace that, that a person could have, that a Christian could have, knowing that, that death was less than 24 hours away. That, that as he was talking to me, he had a smile on his face. He had peace Enjoy knowing that he was about to receive his reward, that he was about to be standing in the presence of Christ, his Savior, who died that he might live so that in his death he would have no fear because he knew he would live again. You see, there is great joy, although death may come. In fact, because Christ has risen and our faith is in him, we are not only those who do not fear death, but as 1 Corinthians 15 teaches us, we taunt it. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? Thanks be to God who gives us victory. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we will be raised. Oh, brothers and sisters, we have a present hope and a future home in the presence of God. Let's pray. Father God, you are so good to us.